Good evening. I wish to talk to you this evening about the, the state of the nation. Ladies and gentlemen, to whom it concerns, it's a big goal! That was a super goal! Cantwell makes no mistake from the spot, and error wins 3-2. Look at him! Look at him in anguish! Oh, look at the Spanish keeper in anguish! Oh, it's so false! It's so false! I hope yours is well. Hello and welcome back to Irish Football Chronicles. Hope you enjoyed the new theme music there. If you haven't listened before, that will give you a little flavour of what the podcast is all about. We're counting down the 100 most important games in Irish football history and sprinkling them with a little social and cultural flavour as we go. This is episode 4. We had a good response to the Christmas episode, so go back and listen to that if you didn't get a chance. For this episode, we're going to pick up where we left off before Christmas. We're back in 1989 with the epic Italia 90 qualifier between Ireland and Hungary. Now, this was truly one of the most important games in Irish football history. And if we were doing this list in order of significance, it would easily be in the top 10. Just to bring you quickly up to speed, by June 1989, Ireland were within touching distance of their very first World Cup finals. After a slow start with two points and no goals from the first three games, the Republic had seen off leaders Spain amid a frenzied atmosphere at Lansdowne Road. And the final whistle sounds! And Spain's first World Cup defeat is Ireland's first World Cup victory. An outstanding performance at Lansdowne Road by the 12 boys in green. Malta were next on the menu and were handily beaten 2-0 at Lansdowne on the 28th of May. Cascarino and Heitel. And there it is! Sheedy takes the corner, and Moran's there! And Kevin Moran has added the second! That result left the Republic securely in the second qualifying place, well behind Spain, but a point clear of Hungary. Hungary did have a game in hand, but their remaining fixtures were a bit of a nightmare. Away to the Republic, away to Northern Ireland, home to Spain and away to Spain. Whichever way you sliced it, if the Republic could win this one against Hungary, a place in the World Cup was theirs for the taking. This game took place at a pretty tumultuous time in global affairs. Much like today, events of world historic importance were tripping each other up in the headlines every day. If you're not old enough to remember, or if you've decided to forget, here's what June 1989 sounded like. like The noise of gunfire rose from all over the center of Peking. On the streets leading down to the main road to Tiananmen Square. To Iran now, a country in turmoil after the death of its spiritual leader Ayatollah Khomeini. He died on Saturday, but his power to shape events... Back in Ireland, we were in the middle of an election campaign. The outgoing Fianna Fáil minority government was seeking a new mandate with Fine Gael lining up possible coalition partners to, you know what... I'm not even going to cover this because it's too boring, too depressing. And over 30 years on, we're still stuck in the exact same loop. So we're going to leave it to one side for now. Um, Instead, I'll just note that Mary Harney, leader of the Free Market Party, the Progressive Democrats, 
leafleted outside Lansdowne Road before the Ireland-Malta game and almost got run out of town. The Irish crowd also gave short shrift to Fianna Fáil. There was a huge Fianna Fáil branded banner um, taken down shortly after it materialised in the stadium during the game. Having lost the ground war, Taoiseach Charlie Hawhey's men took their propaganda to the skies, buzzing the stadium with an airplane and a hot air balloon carrying pro Fianna Fáil messages. Away from the dismal electioneering, on the day before the Hungary game, the fevered atmosphere in Dublin took a turn for the surreal, with the arrival of Dynasty star Joan Collins. Dynasty had just been cancelled after years of falling ratings, but the deadly diva was still a draw. Hundreds turned up for her book signing event at Eason's, including 41-year-old Barney Coleman, It's the domineering factor I like in her, that and the bitchiness, Barney told the Irish Independent, before adding, I'm in CIE myself. I'm not sure why he said that, any of that, really. By the way, Barney went on to become one of Ireland's leading martial artists, so I really hope he doesn't hear this. Sadly, there was to be no meeting between Big Jack and Big Joan, but the Republic squad did encounter another legendary actress. One of the Irish team's traditions during this period was a pre-match visit to the cinema, usually a day or two before the game. On this occasion, the boys in green were spoiled for choice, with films like Rain Man, Twins, Working Girl and Deadpool all screening in Dublin cinemas. Surprisingly, and to their credit, the squad decided to forgo all those crowd-pleasers. Instead, they headed for the Carlton to see Jonathan Kaplan's harrowing drama, The Accused, which won Jodie Foster an Oscar for her performance as a rape survivor. Incidentally, at 1989 prices, the entire squad, plus Jack Charlton, Morris Setters and Charlie O'Leary, could have paid into the movie for under £100. Less, actually, if they snuck Ray Houghton in as a child. For Catherine, the challenge begins. Kelly McGillis, Jodie Foster, The Accused. For Ireland's Liverpool contingent, the Hungary game was a welcome full stop to a year of turmoil and tragedy. Just nine days before the Ireland-Hungary game, Liverpool FC, still grieving the Hillsborough disaster which we covered in episode two, hosted Arsenal at Anfield in the final game of the 1988-89 league season. There's never been, and probably never will be, such a dramatic conclusion to an English league championship. Liverpool, who had already beaten Everton 3-2 in the FA Cup final, just needed to avoid a defeat by two goals or more to secure a poignant double. Arsenal needed to win by two to snatch the championship away from them. There were five Irish internationals on the pitch, as Arsenal took a second-half lead through Alan Smith. As the game entered stoppage time at 1-0 to the Arsenal, it looked as though Liverpool's Irish quartet of Steve Staunton, Ronnie Whelan, Ray Houghton and John Aldridge would be lording it over Arsenal's David O'Leary when the national team met up in Dublin days later. Instead, this happened. A good ball by Dixon, finding Smith. But Thomas charging through the midfield! Thomas, it's up for grabs now! Thomas! Right at the end! climax to the league season well into injury time the Liverpool players are down absolutely abject after the trauma of Hillsborough and 
all the emotions associated with the cup final and the title decider, Liverpool's Irish contingent must have been exhausted by the time they arrived in Dublin for the June internationals. But there was no respite to be found in the city. Dublin was at fever pitch ahead of this doubleheader, with almost 50,000 fans cramming into Lansdowne for the Malta game, and the Hungary game played unusually on a Sunday afternoon, certain to sell out. Jack Charlton, ever the ringmaster, knew what he was doing when he arranged for Ireland to play three consecutive home games in the space of six weeks. The Irish football public could taste the World Cup, and they wolfed down every last morsel. In fact, such was the appetite for Jack's team that 4,500 people turned up at Tolka Park to see an Ireland 11 play a League of Ireland 11 in Ray Tracy's testimonial just before the, the Malta game. Incredibly, with two monster fixtures days away, Tony Cascarino, Andy Townsend and Chris Hutton all featured in a game which the League of Ireland won 1-0 thanks to an own goal by Gary Waddock whose luck wasn't about to get any better. Ireland's Hungarian visitors had problems that went way beyond a tricky fixture list. I'm not going to go into the seismic political changes that would bring down the Berlin Wall a few months later. If you're interested in the politics of how Hungary eventually wound up with the far-right government it has today, I just point you to the work of the Hungarian political philosopher Gaspar Tamás. Knock yourselves out with that. Hungary came into this game undefeated in the group, But two inexplicable draws against Malta and a fiendish run-in meant they had to take something from this fixture to have a realistic chance of going to the World Cup. Incredibly, the Hungarians had used 26 different players in their four matches to date. Why the massive turnover? Well, because for the second time in five years, Hungarian football had been hit by a huge match-fixing scandal. Back in 1983... 334 players, coaches, officials and gamblers had been arrested after evidence emerged of widespread corruption in the Hungarian league. National team goalkeeper Attila Kovac had been given a 10-year ban, although he was back playing for Vasash by 1987. By the way, just a quick note on Hungarian names. In Hungary, the family name is listed first, so the legend we know as Ferenc Puskas is known to Hungarians as Puskas Ferenc. But we'll be sticking with the Western name order for the avoidance of confusion. In 1988, the issue of match-fixing reared its ugly head again. To its infinite credit, the Hungarian Football Federation acted with lightning speed. To combat match-fixing, for the 1988-89 season, the Hungarian League just abolished drawn matches altogether. Presumably, the thinking was that players are more willing to draw a game for money than to throw it outright. Instead, drawn matches would be settled by a penalty shootout, with the winners taking two points and the losers retaining just one. The Hungarian Football Federation was also quite prepared to jeopardise the country's chances of making the World Cup in its crusade against corruption. National team manager Georgi Meje was sacked and arrested mid-campaign, along with 42 professional players from the Hungarian League. Established internationals such as Sandor Salai were exiled from the national team while investigations continued. Lajos Tatari, the golden boy of Hungarian football, was suspended due to allegations dating from his time at Honved. Tatari was now playing for Olympiakos in Greece after a £5 million transfer from Eintracht Frankfurt. 
Under pressure from fans and the Hungarian media, he was restored to the squad for the Ireland game by new manager Bertilan Bicke. Bicke and his men were shown around Dublin by their interpreter, Hungarian-born security guard Laszlo Lorinch from Finglas. Bicke himself was unimpressed by a squad visit to St Stephen's Green Shopping Centre, telling Colette Sheridan of the Tribune that he found everything in Dublin far too expensive, so he just bought some chocolates for the kids. So just like your culture on a day trip. By comparison with Beachkay's problems, Jack Charlton's selection issues paled into insignificance. Ronnie Whelan was suspended after picking up a stupid booking against Malta. In his place, Charlton opted to give Andy Townsend a first competitive start, which pretty much sounded the death knell for Liam Brady's international career at the age of 33. Frank Stapleton was also heading for the departure lounge, replaced on this occasion with John Aldridge after picking up a knock against Malta. Aldridge had notched 31 goals for Liverpool in the 88-89 season, but he still had just a single international goal to show for his 24 Ireland caps. I'll go through the rest of the Ireland lineup and get onto the game in a minute. But first, I just want to take a quick step back and look at the changing face of Ireland in 1989. We remember this period as a time of rapid social liberalisation, but the Catholic Church still had the ability to mobilise vast numbers of citizens. On the same day as the Ireland-Malta game, 30,000 people poured piously onto the streets of Cork City for the Eucharistic procession, an event which attracts fewer than a 1,000 worshippers today. If you listened closely to the Ireland of 1989, you could just make out the first faint purrs of the Celtic Tiger. Football was still emphatically a working-class game supported by working-class fans, but the Ireland team's heroics were beginning to attract the attention of the D4 Brigade. Controversially, the FAI had introduced a new way for well-heeled Johnny-come-latelys to spunk their cash, offering corporate hospitality at Ireland games. The exclusive luxury marquee package included a four-course luncheon with wine, for the knockdown price of £110 plus VAT per person, a hefty wedge in 1989. Under pressure from fans, the FAI deferred the rollout of this millionaire's playground until the West Germany friendly later in the year, but the writing was on the wall. The match programme for the Hungary game also gives a sense of an Irish corporate class reaching for the sky, even amidst the rampant poverty and inequality of 1980s Ireland. Irish whisky had been trying to shake off its reputation as throat-ripping blackout juice for decades, but an advertisement for Jemison whisky featured some of the most ridiculously overblown copy outside an episode of Mad Men. I'll try to do it justice. It's a far cry from the days when Gogol, the 19th century Russian novelist, used to draw pictures of the Italian Campania on the marble-top tables of Rome's Café Greco to the sophisticated young Romans of today who come in from the fashionable Via Condotti to relax over a Jemison Irish whiskey amidst memorabilia of a bygone age and of the Greco's most illustrious patrons. Jemison, you're famous. I'm looking at the picture accompanying this ad right now and one of the sophisticated young Romans in it has a bald patch the size of the Colosseum. One of the reasons football enjoyed such a high profile in this period was that Ireland wasn't exactly tearing it up elsewhere in the sporting arena. 
The Irish Olympic team had managed a grand total of zero medals at the 1988 Olympics in Seoul. And boxer Barry McGuigan, one of Ireland's sporting icons of the 80s, saw his career come to an abrupt end just a few days before the Hungary game. Going to have another look at that, Mickey Van. I don't fancy this at all. It's all over in the fourth round. It's always on the cards there that that was going to happen. There was just no doubt or ambiguity about it. By June of 1989, football was the only game in town. Erin Road Erin was laying on special rates for fans travelling to the game from all corners of the country. In Kiltubrid, County Leitrim, the local GAA pitch was commandeered for a giant screen showing the Ireland-Hungary game. In Vickerstown, County Leash, competitors in the annual horseshoe pitching competition ceased hostilities to watch the game. The Limerick leader reported a solid column of vehicles streaming out of Limerick on the morning of the game, bedecked in green and white, clogging the Dublin road as far as the eye could see. To be clear about this, nothing before or since in Irish sport bears the slightest comparison with the mania unleashed by Ireland's challenge for Italia 90. Hype and fanaticism are not the same thing, and the 50,000 fans cramming Lansdowne Road weren't there because of a nicely cut TV promo. This was something that ran far, far deeper. And the Irish team they'd all come to see was as follows. In goal, Packy Bonner. At right-back, Chris Hewton held his place against the claims of Bonner's Celtic teammate Chris Morris. At left-back, Steve Staunton, who'd been through the ringer with Liverpool, was now established as Ireland's first choice. In the absence of the injured Mick McCarthy, who just signed for Lyon, Arsenal's David O'Leary joined Kevin Moran in central defence. O'Leary and Charlton had a tempestuous relationship after the Arsenal man pulled out of a friendly tournament in Iceland in 1986, but there were signs that he was beginning to be entrusted with responsibility again. Ray Houghton, probably Ireland's best player in the qualifiers to date, took the right-sided midfield slot with Kevin Sheedy on the left. In the middle, Charlton plumped for the power and engine of Andy Townsend to replace the suspended Whelan, with Paul McGrath sitting deeper. And up front, John Aldridge partnered Tony Cascarino. Hungary opted for a five-man defence with future Liverpool flop Istvan Kozma at right-back. The Hungarian team included a pair of brothers, goalkeeper Peter Dijstel and sweeper Laszlo Dijstel. Imre Boda played on his own up front, with Lajos Detari pulling the strings, or attempting to, behind him. Unusually for this period, referee Egil Nervik was not the elder lemon on the field, with stand-in Ireland captain Kevin Moran a year older than the Norwegian official who was taking charge of his first World Cup qualifier. Ireland had never beaten Hungary in eight attempts, but a stellar home record and 50,000 fans, plus Terry Wogan... I shouldn't have done that. I, I'm not proud of that. ...baying for glory, they started as firm favourites for this one. Just two minutes in, Kevin Sheedy fires the first warning shot, looping an effort over the crossbar after Cascarino's flick-on. Cascarino himself then has an effort kicked away by Peter Dijstel before Mesharos gives Ireland something to worry about in the 10th minute, a fierce shot collected by Bonner at the second attempt. Lansdowne Road is seething with expectation. Everyone has the sense that this, right here, right now, is the crucible in which the future of Irish football is being forged. A goal either way could have implications for decades. 
But there's no sense that Jack Charlton is feeling the hand of history on his shoulder. He's managing the game exactly as he always does. The match is settling into the classic Charlton-era pattern as Ireland's direct, bullying football creates half-chance after half-chance. The clearest falls to Paul McGrath, who slots one just wide with his left foot when he probably should score. A couple of moments later, Cascarino's good touch for a big man deserts him, and goalkeeper Dishtil keeps out his weak shot. Cascarino in his pomp was a frightening proposition for any defence. He contests 20 headers throughout this match and wins 19 of them. Ireland's long ball game is relentless. 20 minutes in, David O'Leary launches one towards Cascarino. The Millwall man flicks it on to Aldridge, who tries to play in Houghton, but the keeper just gets there in time. Just 23 minutes in, Ireland have their third clear opportunity of the game. Aldridge gets a touch to Staunton's free kick. The ball beats the keeper, but Keller scrambles it away off the line, with Houghton closing in. With the Hungarians wilting under the pressure, the Irish crowd sent blood. Moments later, they get it. Staunton, and that's found its way through the Sheedy. Staunton again, well played by the fullback. Staunton's cross. It's a memorable goal that swiftly becomes iconic. Staunton links up with Sheedy on the left, dances past a reckless lunge, and sculpts a delicate cross towards Cascarino. Garaba beats Cascarino to the cross, but his headed clearance falls to Paul McGrath. McGrath pivots gently backwards and guides a smooth, controlled volley past the unsighted goalkeeper who doesn't even dive. It's McGrath's fourth international goal, he'll eventually manage eight. Ireland almost doubled their lead within seconds, but with the goal yawning, Cascarino can't quite reach Townsend's tempting cross. Townsend, who's running the show on his way to a Man of the Match competitive debut, gets booked for kicking the ball away on 35 minutes. It doesn't cramp his style. Right on half-time, Aldridge tumbles in the box, but the ref isn't interested. Mr. Nervik's half-time whistle is the signal for wild, if premature, celebrations. The Lansdowne roar was always a bit of a myth, but today it's in full effect, and almost bestial in its vigour. Back in the RTE studio, which somewhat resembles a South Dublin health spa, John Giles and Ray Tracy are as enthused as two men in late 80s knitwear can possibly be. We're going to take a 30 second ad break, which should sound familiar, and then we'll be back with the second half. Draka Noir, the fragrance for men that women love, at Henehan's Castle Bar. Rapport, for the man that wants more. Rapport, for today's man. On Sunday, the 13th of March, catch the Olympia Express from Westport, Castle Bar, Claremont, and Roscommon to see RTE's live variety spectacular Sunday night at the Olympia, starring Neil Tobin, Gina Dale Hayes and the Champions, Harmony Sweet, Susie Kennedy, Nigel Williams, and Gemma Craven. Have a great night's entertainment with Brandon Grace and a host of stars. The Olympia Express, Sunday 13th, so book now at Irish Rail Stations. No changes at half time and no change in the pattern of the game. Just a couple of minutes into the second half, Morin gets his big lump of a bounce to Sheedy's free kick, but Dishtil keeps it out with his chest. Neither Sheedy nor Aldridge are at the very top of their form, but the two men combine to set up Townsend, who whistles a shot just wide from 20 yards. But now the game is starting to get scrappy. 
and Hungary sends the route back into the match and the World Cup. Playmaker Datari, knocked off his stride in the first half by some heavy challenges, is beginning to tune up. The midfielder cost Olympiakos £5 million, this at a time when the world record transfer fee was £6 million, and the crowd is beginning to see where that money went. Datari's seductive range of passing is worrying the Irish defence, but much like the Irish political class, he has little to work with up top. Lone striker Imre Boda, who plays for a different Olympiakos, Olympiakos Vosos, would finish the season as the top scorer in the Greek league, but Morin and O'Leary have him under wraps here. With Datari wide awake and handing out sweeties, manager Bichke goes for broke. He throws on two of Hungary's overseas-based attackers, Bognar of Toulon and Vince of Lecce. Meanwhile, a huge roar erupts around the ground, as Liam Brady, a dwindling star but still a star, unzips his tracksuit top. He replaces the disappointing Aldridge, as Ireland shift to a 4-5-1 for the last 15 minutes. To use George Hamilton's favourite phrase, it's a case of what we have, we hold but Ireland's grip on what they have is looking less and less secure. Datari and Vince combined to set up Garava, whose shot is far too close for comfort. Minutes later, one of the most decisive moments in Irish football history. With 12 minutes to play, McGrath commits a foul 30 yards out from the Irish goal. Ireland set up a token two-man wall, but as Datari rolls the ball forward to Garaba, no one closes down. Garaba rides the bounce of the bumpy Lansdowne pitch and unleashes a shot from 25 yards. It skims through a mass of bodies and bounces in front of Bonner, who just manages to touch it onto the post and wide. Quite possibly the single most important save he or any Irish goalkeeper has ever made. As the crowd exhales as one, Charlton decides to shore things up by bringing on Chris Morris for Paul McGrath. The goal scorer has run himself into the ground and Morris, normally a right-back, settles into a defensive midfield position. The tension now is unbearable. We're back in that same situation as the Spain match, where a single goal either way could be absolutely decisive. With nine minutes remaining... A moment of catharsis which threatens to lift Lansdowne into orbit. Hansend hoists a canny ball down the left-hand channel for Houghton to chase. Garaba gets there first but tumbles under a gentle push from Houghton's hand. Mr Nervik waves play on. Houghton cuts inside and squares it for Cascarino. The pass is cut out by Lajlo Distil, but the deflection loops the ball over his brother Peter in the Hungarian goal. It bounces into the goal mount where Tony Cascarino risks his remaining teeth to nuzzle it over the line for a scruffy, ugly, beautiful, precious goal. Now the crowd can celebrate. Hungary are crestfallen. A bedraggled, battered, demoralised team have given it their best shot, but the World Cup finals are slipping from their grasp. For Ireland, it's the sheer, unabashed exultation 
that only decades of disappointment can store up. This finally is it. The last major obstruction, maybe, on the road to Ireland's very first World Cup. The whistle goes, and Ireland have done it. In the excitement, in the frenzy of celebration, people are understandably getting ahead of themselves. The crowds massing at the dart platforms on the way back into town are openly talking about qualification, package deals, flights and accommodation. We're, we're coming off a roll of three games, which is Spain, Malta and now Hungary. And every time we've been in the studio, we've said, we have to win today. We did, we know, but all three we had to win. We've gone out and I've never felt under pressure that maybe we won't. I've been fully confident that we would win. Um, we'll also get whatever's necessary to get against Northern Ireland and we will go to Italy. The chatter in the newspapers over the following days is no more reserved. The Dundalk Democrat predicts that 25,000 Irish fans will make their way to Italy, largely, it seems, to watch local boy Steve Staunton. In truth, Ireland probably still need a win and a draw from their last two games to make certain. But that's a worry for another day, specifically the 11th of October when Northern Ireland come to town. And that will be our next episode, but just a few notes from the aftermath of this epoch-making game. Amidst all the plaudits and the whirlwind of triumphant TV appearances and ghost-written newspaper columns, Charlton's squad has one last stop-off before breaking up for the summer. I just want you to try the following sentence on for size. The Ireland team took a 2-0 lead when a surging 40-yard run by centre-half Tony Cascarino led to an own goal. No, you haven't slipped into a parallel universe. This actually happened. On the day after the Hungary game, nine of the victorious squad headed for Oriel Park, where they took part in a benefit match for Dundalk's Barry Kyo, who was facing cancer for a second time. Kyo was awarded a new contract by Dundalk before the game, which saw a Jack Charlton 11 featuring Cascarino in defence and Liam Brady up front, take on a Barry Kyo 11, largely drawn from the League of Ireland but boosted by a few ringers like Brian McClare, Peter Reid and Mal Donaghy. Jack's 11 went 2-0 up through Liam Brady and that Martin Lawler own goal, but two excellent strikes from Owen Coyle and Gino Lawless saw the match end in a 2-all draw. Barry Kyo, who'd led Dundalk to a League and Cup double in 1988, recovered from his cancer and was still playing League of Ireland football well into the mid-90s. Sadly, Barry passed away suddenly playing golf in 2002. Paul McGrath had a somewhat less conventional appointment after the game, heading to Thurless for the ordination of his friend, the Reverend Aidan Crowley, who's now a parish priest in Cove. When was the last time you got asked to an ordination? There have been some fairly fraught discussions about player bonuses for the World Cup, which everyone had agreed to park for now, but others were happy to cash in. Every major party produced election ads featuring footballs or football puns. Meanwhile, Ireland's sponsors Opal, who'd paid 600 grand into the FEI's coffers since 1986, were milking it for all it was worth. At the Blanchestown Summer Fair, Michael Fitzsimons of Opal said, Hungary may have been beaten, but we're still hungry for sales. I think Ricky Gervais owes some royalties. For the Football Association of Ireland, these were dizzying horizons. The organisation had been close to insolvency in the mid-1980s, but with the Opal deal and the revenues from the European Championships, which came to about 600 grand clear profit, things were looking decidedly rosier. A sellout Lansdowne Road was worth about £450,000 to the FAI, even if they had to kick 15% of that back to the IRFU. 
the FAI were now talking somewhat hubristically about building a 30,000 capacity bells and whistles stadium on the site of Dalyman Park, which they just acquired from Bohemians. We all know how that went in the end. Fortunately, the FAI stewarded these new revenues very carefully and there were no additional financial issues in the years to come. And on that sadly typical note, we're going to leave the story of Ireland-Hungary in 1989 and look forward to the Northern Ireland game of October 1989, which will be our next episode. I'm probably going to cover the Northern Ireland and Malta games in slightly streamlined format so we can be done with the story of Italian 90 qualification. Um, and then we'll venture into perhaps some less familiar hinterlands of Irish football that you might enjoy. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, please email 100irishgames at gmail.com or find us at 100irishgames on Twitter. Just a couple of notes on this episode. As ever, Greg Malloy's Irish TV archive was absolutely indispensable. You can find that at Killian M2 on YouTube. And a lot of the sources were drawn from contemporary newspapers which I accessed via Irish News Archives and British News Archives. So please do get in touch if you're enjoying the podcast or if there's any particular game you'd like us to focus on, and we'll see you again soon. Bye.